morning, I'd like for you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. You may be pleased to know that this is our last study in Genesis chapter 3 before we move on to chapter 4. We've been here a considerable amount of time, but it has been a very uh, necessary time spent in this book, especially in this chapter, because of the content of the origin of sin. Why things are the way they are today in this world. And why we need to be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. I want to also mention that uh, what we're studying here in the book of Genesis uh, has been going so hand in hand with what we're studying on Wednesday nights in the book of Romans. So I do want to encourage you not to uh, hesitate in coming and uh, and studying along with us in Romans because these two books have been uh, just hand in hand. And I, I mentioned to some people that, uh, you know, uh, the, the plan wasn't so much that. I, I believe that the Holy Spirit is putting all of this together for our understanding. So um, with that in mind, I, I want to read verses 22 through 24. And then we'll pray and get right into our study this morning. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we are blessed to once again come to your throne of grace and once again to be in that place where we open up your word and where we let you through your word speak to our hearts. And we desire so much together to be attentive. We know that many things can distract us. And so I pray, Father, that whatever distractions uh, may be possible, that we ourselves would put those distractions aside. And that our ears would be open and our eyes would be open and our hearts especially and our minds be open to your truth. Lead us now and guide us in your truth, that we may walk in your truth, that we may stand in your truth, and that we may give testimony of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. There's a phrase that I'm sure everybody has heard, but probably not from your parents, even though they are the ones who are supposed to have said, this is going to hurt you, or I should say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I've heard the phrase, but I don't think I've ever heard my parents say that when I was a kid. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And of course, this is supposed to be said just prior to the infliction of some kind of discipline whether it was to be with a belt or with a paddle or with an open hand on the backside. 
Come to think of it, as I continue to ponder back so many years, I don't think I ever heard my parents say this. As a matter of fact, I'm sure they wanted it to hurt me for the sake of learning a lesson. How many of you can agree with that? That's why even though we've heard the phrase, we don't ever really hear it from the ones who say they're really going to hurt more than us. But if anyone could have used this phrase rightly, it would have been the Lord himself as he prepared to expel Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. It was going to hurt him. It was going to hit them a lot, but it was going to hurt him a lot more. And to coin another phrase, a familiar phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words, and, and it seems that every picture or drawing or painting of this expulsion has always, or in most cases at least, been a, a stern God with stern angels casting out Adam and Eve from the garden condescendingly, or Adam and Eve fearfully leaving Eden in great trepidation or apprehension. But the picture for me that is worth a thousand words is that one the scriptures vividly describe. And while there is a great sense of reality in the works done by the Renaissance painters who used this particular portion of scripture as a theme, or as William Blake did in, in illustrating much of this particular passage here, or those who may be familiar with Masaccio and his frescoes in Florence. The fact of the matter is, in the use of the bold contrast of light and darkness, and <clears throat> the human couple engulfed in, uh, in, in anguish and shame while an angel overhead uh, hovers with a sword in hand, there, there is a need for us to know not only the sadness experienced by the Lord God who expelled them, but the pain by which he did so. We need to remember that a gracious God provided the sacrifice for Adam and Eve to have their nakedness covered. Add to that the fact that God also performed the sacrifice, slaughtering the animal before the couple's eyes, uh, its blood shed to pay the price, its covering made theirs. And by the way, I, I truly believe with all my heart that it wasn't just one lamb, it was two lambs, because there had to be one for each sinner. But God responded to Adam and Eve's faith by removing their flimsy man-fashioned fig leaves, their man-made coverings, and clothed them with acceptable garments. And it brings to mind that great statement in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 10 and 11, where it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And again, the very thought that God himself would be the one to clothe them, would be the one to cover them, would be the one, the very one to do everything that was necessary for their salvation. And that is why salvation, as we understand it from our perspective today, is something that we are to rejoice in. 
But we never should be uh, cut off from the work that was done to bring us that salvation. And the heart from which God acted on our behalf. Innocent animals had to die so that the man and woman might have a new beginning and return in fellowship with the Lord. The picture that is worth a thousand words is the reflection of that very event thousands of years later when Jesus died for sinners on the cross. In effect, dying for a sinful world infected by the original sin of Adam. Each and every one of us born into this world in sin. Each and every one of us needing that salvation. Each and every one of us needing to to know what Jesus Christ has done. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He not only sacrificed, he became the sacrifice for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so God did not only act graciously to rescue the fallen man and woman. He also acted governmentally as we shall see in our text. He acted graciously, but he also acted governmentally, as we shall see here in verses 22 through 24 again. Let me read it to you. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. When I speak of God acting governmentally, I mean to say that the Lord had to impose a consequence for their sakes to avoid an even greater consequence. God was acting governmentally by imposing a consequence for the sake of these people, of the man and the woman, of Adam and Eve, to avoid an even greater consequence in their life. And that consequence would have been living forever in their sins. Living forever in their sins. In fact, they would have become like the fallen angels who, in their angelic character of being incapable of death, are now locked forever into the guilt and penalty of their sin. When you think about the fall from grace, or the fall from heaven, in the sense that that Lucifer, who became Satan, was, was never given an opportunity, was never given a way of escape. And the third of the angels that have followed him are not given that opportunity like Adam and Eve were given. For Adam and Eve, it would have been impossible, you see, to renew them to repentance. Had they eaten of the tree of life after having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it just reminds us how backwards we sometimes do things. As human beings. God gave the garden to man and woman and said, look, of all the trees that are in the garden, you can eat except this one. 
Which means that they had the opportunity, had they wanted to, to go to the tree of life, to eat of that tree, and to live forever in that presence of God. To live forever in the fellowship with God. But it was that one tree that Satan came to test them and to tempt them and to draw them and to entice them and to seduce them away from into that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We just sometimes do things backwards, don't we? We could have had the tree of life. Instead, we ate of the forbidden tree. And we ate of the forbidden fruit. And now there's death. So the Lord took the guilty pair out of Eden. And he put them beyond the possibility of interfering and meddling with the tree of life. And to make sure that they were kept away, an armed guard was posted at the garden, at the gate of the garden in the east of Eden. Well, that's the simple exposition of these verses. I suppose I could say, all right, we're done. We can go home now. But you know better. There's a lot more that we need to see in these three verses. What does it all mean for us today? What does it teach us about us? And what does it teach us about the Lord? What we find in this passage in these three verses is a second council of the Godhead convening. It's the second time that we see the Godhead come together in council. Let me read verse 22 to you. It says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us. The Godhead, the three in one are, are have convened together over this particular issue. And I can, say, I can say boldly the three in one because we can go through all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and realize that there is one God, but he is described in three persons. A person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this, of course, back in Genesis chapter 1. But here the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and to know evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Something is about to, to happen. In this verse, we're given a, a brief glimpse into the inner councils of the triune Godhead once again. And it's interesting to me that the first council of the Godhead was recorded relative to the decision to create man. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image. Speaking about creating man, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Remember that we were created in the image of God. We have spirit, we have a soul, we have a body. Spirit, soul, and body. We think of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Spirit, Soul, Body. 
But while the second council that we're privy to decrees man's expulsion from the garden and the tree of life, they still meet again about man. First time about creating man, the second time about getting man out of the garden. (laughs) But in both passages, the uniplurality of God is stressed. We talked about this as well in chapter 1. Uniplurality, of course, uni coming from the word one. Plurality meaning many. One but many. The uniplurality of God is being stressed once again. Because in our text it says, And the Lord God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let us. But here in verse 22, Behold, the man is become as one of us. And that plurality, uniplurality is, is, is once again stressed to us. Man is said to know evil, even as God knows evil. But there is a vast difference between God's knowledge of evil and man's knowledge of evil. We have to come to grips with this understanding. We need to know that there is a difference between God's knowledge of evil and man's knowledge of evil. God knows evil because he sees evil as it lies spread out before him. God knows evil as he sees evil lying out before him. God does not know evil by experience. God does not know evil by experience. God doesn't think evil. God doesn't do evil. God doesn't speak evil. He cannot because he is God. He is pure. He is holy. He is righteous. He's just. He's true. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's all these things plus a whole lot more, but he's not evil. And he didn't create evil. God knows evil only in the sense that he sees it as it happens, as it is committed by others. But how terrible is this? Just think of the pain that cuts God's heart when evil is done, when he is rejected, when he's disobeyed, when he's turned against. Every thought and act of evil cuts God's heart and causes a wretched pain beyond anything we could ever know. And should we ask the question, how much evil does God know about? I don't think we're ready for the answer. How much evil does God know about? Well, every evil thought and act upon earth is what God knows about because he's all-knowing. And there's nothing that we can hide from God. We can hide it from others, but we cannot hide it from God. So think in these terms. Think about how you, when you react, when you see evil, how you react to that evil in the sense of how awful, how ugly, how, how tragic, how, how wicked it is. But what we see of evil 
cannot even come close to being compared to what God sees. As he sees the whole universe. As he knows every heart. Because he created everyone. And realizes that each and every one of us was born into sin. Born with sin into this world I should say. Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God sees all of this evil. But then verse 22 also shows us something quite remarkable too. Let me read it to you again. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. This verse 22 shows us something remarkable. It shows us that man's good, in other words his happiness and his joy, does not consist in his being like God as much as it depends on his being with God. Now that's a little bit hard to grasp at times. Because a lot of times we say, I want to be like Jesus. I just want to be like Jesus. And that's okay to have the desire. But we realize we cannot be like Jesus without Jesus in us. We cannot walk like Jesus unless Christ and his Holy Spirit is with us. We have to realize that wanting to be like God is the problem in this world. Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to be like the Most High. As Lucifer, he wanted to sit on the very throne of God. Remember the five I wills of Satan or Lucifer in Isaiah 14. The very pride that he desired to have that throne is the very pride that he gave to man in the garden. Did God really say these things? He didn't really say that. He doesn't want you to be like him. Therefore, he's keeping something good from you. And they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even knowing that when God told them, if you take of that tree, on the day you eat of it, you shall begin to die. And we realize that the very root of all sin is pride. Man's goodness, man's hope, man's happiness, man's joy doesn't consist in his being like God as much as it depends on on his being with God. Think again. What are men doing today? They are rising up in rebellion against God all the time. I don't want to do what your word says. I don't want to even believe that there's a God because if I can just say there isn't a God, then I can live the way I want to live. I can, in other words, be like my own God. Is this not the problem in the world today that everybody wants to have their own way? And wasn't this the problem with the children of Israel after, after crossing over the promised land and the generation that came over? After that generation was gone? Was gone? In the book of Judges, the generation that remained only sought after their own desires only and, and putting aside God himself. This is, the, this is the kind of generation we live in today. 
Well, no one wants to obey God. No one wants to have the knowledge of God's word in them because it, it messes with their lifestyle. Turn to Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In thy presence, do you see that phrase? In thy presence is fullness of joy. Our joy does not consist in, his being, in us being like God it, as much as it depends on us being with God and knowing that God is with us. His presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Are you walking with God? Is God walking with you? That's the question. That's what we need to answer by our lives. But once again, as we look at this whole statement in verse 22, God's statement wasn't made in irony. It wasn't made in ridicule, as some have believed, but it was made in sadness. He's become like one of us. Knowing good and evil. Man had once known only the goodness of God. But now he had come to know experientially the evil inherent in rejecting, or in rejecting, I should say, the word of God, as well as the necessary spiritual and physical suffering resulting from such an action, so that he indeed knew uh, now good and evil. And to know good and evil where we are today is a tremendous burden, not a great help. Adam and Eve, in the perfection of the garden, knew the goodness of the Lord. I think we can go back to some other coined phrase. You know, what you don't know won't hurt you. The Lord was saying, if you just know me, guess what? You are going to have joy and peace and happiness. But did you know that that's the same way it is today? If you know him, if you walk with him, if you live with him, you will know the peace and joy of the Lord in spite of everything else that's going on in this world. But here was the result of the promised lie of the evil one, the promised lie Man, because of the serpent's promise, was hoping for godness, which already, uh, while already living in God's goodness, they wanted godness. They ha they had God's goodness. They wanted godness, and so they ate of the tree. They believed the serpent, and not God. There's the difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Those who would rather believe the serpent are the offspring of the serpent. Those who would rather believe the son shall have life and have it more abundantly in Jesus Christ. And so the image of God in which he had been created was now marred and defaced by this evil. 
The image of God was marred and defaced by this evil. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. By the way, I mentioned earlier about our, our, our putting hand in hand, Genesis and Romans together. Listen how, how much they go together. Here Paul says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Did not Adam and Eve know God? Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. As soon as they took the fruit of that tree, they stopped glorifying God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. They became prideful, but in that pride they became worthless, because that's what it means to be vain. And in their imaginations, their, their thoughts and desires of being like God. They became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Their heart was, a, was, was shining the light as long as they were in that in that. Uh, paradise with God. They had the glory of God on them. We talked about that glory. But now their foolish heart was darkened. I know that Paul is speaking generally here about those who do not choose to believe in God. But nonetheless, how much we see this applied to Adam and Eve. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Well, that certainly is going on today. Some of you may have read on, on the internet or in the paper that uh, Stephen Hawking, the uh, physicist, the one who's in the wheelchair, can, can't talk, he has a machine that talks for him or whatever. Very brilliant man. Been around a long time. Well, I should say he's somewhat brilliant because I don't know about anybody who would go ahead and let him be on The Simpsons, but, you know, that's another matter. But, but here he is, a, a brilliant physicist, written many books over the many 20, 30 years. But, but uh, he at one time tried to marry the idea of religion and, and uh, evolution in the sense of, uh, of, yeah, there is a God, but, uh, you know, there is also science and so on and so forth. Now he's come out with another book. And in this new book, he just says there is no God. And there's no God necessary and his whole premise is based upon theories. You read about this and you realize it's not based upon fact, it's just based upon theories. And people today will take somebody like Stephen Hawking and say, wow, he's a brilliant man. And he's got theories that God did not create. God was not even needed to create the heavens and the earth because of gravity and many other little points and things. Professing themselves to be wise, they become more foolish. And Paul goes on to say, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into the lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Is this not what we see about us all the time? What our children have been indoctrinated in in the public schools today in science classes? Even to the extent of, 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 of letting them know, you know, you, you can have your own beliefs if you want, but in, in these public schools, 
in this country of the United States, which is, by the way, founded upon the principles of the scriptures, you can't bring them up. The second council God convened, the God had convened to meet about man. In the second council, the God had now cast man from the garden. Let's read verses 22 and 23. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And so in his mercy, the Lord protected Adam and Eve from the horrible outcome of having to live forever as sinners by preventing them from eating of the tree of life. That was merciful, folks. It was merciful for God to do this. Because he knew that on the day that they would eat of the tree of life, if they stayed in the garden, they would live forever in their sins. And they would live forever separated from God. God sends them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from where he was taken. Securing his bread by the sweat of his brow. Last week we talked about the fact that when when Adam was working in the garden, God uh, told him to tend and keep the garden. And he was working in the garden. And I I truly believe as as Adam did that in paradise, in the perfection of paradise, he never sweated. But as soon as man faltered and failed and sinned, Now he says, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work. And that's how you're going to get your bread. You know, when you think about this part of the scene here, it it may even be that the fallen couple didn't even want to stay in the garden. Weren't they ashamed? Weren't they now ashamed of the fact that God had to do all of these things for for them? Because they had failed him miserably? So it might even be that the fallen couple didn't even want to stay in the garden, but it may have even crossed their minds that if if they left, they might never see God again. Since it was the only place where they had met him. It was the only place where they met God. It was in the garden. And now God moves them out of the garden. But the Lord God had deeper reasons for allowing this to happen. Primarily it was to teach man and his descendants the true nature and effects of sin. Now that we were stained by this original sin, now that we were stained by this sin of disobedience committed by Adam and Eve, God is wanting to teach us about the nature and the effects of sin and what it means to live out of fellowship with God. And so the picture of the expulsion from the garden. What happens when you live out of fellowship with God? So that they would eventually come to know and understand and love Him fully, not only as Savior, but also as Maker and Provider. You see, people today want God to be Provider. But we need to realize that He's also our Maker and He is our Savior. And we cannot live without that knowledge of God. 
And God has made a way through these happenings for us to know that. He is not only provider. He is also maker. He is also savior. He is Lord. He is master. And by the way, the usage of the name the Lord God throughout this chapter is to remind us all that the creator of the heavens and the earth is still omnipotent. He is still eternal God. He is still the immutable and unchanging Lord of grace and mercy, of holiness and righteousness and truth. He is still God. God hasn't changed. Too many people, even in the church, are today trying to change God and change God's word, change God's ways, and we cannot let that happen. God still hates sin. And God is very clear about the sins that he hates. And God still wants us to hate sin like he hates sin. Malachi 3, verse 6, God says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Man is trying to change God. God sets his laws and man says, Well, you know, that's nice, but uh, that was just for the Jews. That was just for the Hebrews. That was just for the children of Israel. It's all different now. God of the Old Testament is a, is a mean, stern, you know, uh, vengeful God. But the God of the New Testament, this Jesus, he's so sweet and mild and loving and caring and all of this type of stuff. Really? Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus just didn't come on the scene. He's been forever. A part of the Godhead that convened because of man's sin in the garden. And yes, I know that John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That was his first coming. But have you seen what Jesus looks like when it describes his second coming? How he is going to come with eyes of flame of fire, with a sword of the Spirit, uh, the sword of the Word of God coming from his mouth coming in white garments arrayed in gold what is he coming to do he's coming to judge and we see in part of the pictures that we see combining the old and new testament jesus robes stained with the blood of his enemies we try to change god but god doesn't change and we need a god who is righteous and holy and just and true. For that same God is the God who has loved us with an everlasting love and provided us a way of escape so that we will be living with him forever and ever. The second counsel of the Godhead then cautions man in verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim. By the way, cherubim, I, I'm saying cherubim and it's, it's written in the King James cherubims. But uh, any Hebrew word that ends in I am is already plural, so we don't have to double pluralize the word. It's cherubim. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep or to guard the way of the tree of life. 
So to guard the way of the tree of life. The Lord placed cherubim and a flaming sword at the east of the garden. Now these creatures, now by the way, a cherub is one of these angels, angelic beings. A cherub. Now a lot of times artists down through the ages have given us this picture that a cherub is a little... You know, a little chubby, little baby-like looking angel with little wings and, a, and arrows shooting into your heart like Cupid, you know. Uh, that's not a cherub. So this coming Valentine, just realize that I don't know where that came from, that idea. Now this, this was a creature of the highest angelic order they're described in other parts of the scriptures more fully they're also some called seraphim Isaiah 6 mentions seraphim Ezekiel 1 and 10 mentioned the cherubs or the cherubim and in Revelation chapter 4 as well there's an interesting picture if you look at chapter 4 and what connects this of course is the last verse verse 8 that I'm going to read but in verses 6 through 8 of Revelation 4 it says and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystalline in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind and the first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf and the third beast had a face as a man and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying holy 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 Lord God Almighty which was and is and is to come. But it is very interesting that Satan himself had once been as Lucifer of this order on God's holy mountain. Ezekiel 28, 14, I know that we've read it before. It says of him, Thou art an anointed cherub that covereth. And I have set thee so, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. What we need to come to grips with tonight is, or today as well is that when cherubim were pres- represented on earth, uh, such as we see in, t- in the tabernacle in Exodus 25, they signified a, a meeting place with God. The cherubim on earth signified a meeting place with God. And while Adam and Eve and their descendants were prevented from eating the fruit of the tree of life, they could still come there to meet God. And there's a reason. It was there where the altar was. Now hold that thought for a moment. Was it an animal sacrifice for their coverings? Shed, blood had to be shed for the coverings to be given? God always used an altar for that. This was their holy of holies. This was Adam and Eve's holy of holies. We're told in uh, Exodus 25 verse 17, And thou shalt make a mercy seat with, of pure gold. These are the instructions of the, of the Ark of the Covenant as it was to be built at the time of Moses for the tabernacle. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. A cubit about 18 inches long. And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, of beaten work, that shalt thou make them, and in two ends 
in the two ends of the mercy seat and make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end. And even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on the two ends thereof and the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high covering the mercy seat with their wings and their faces shall look to one another so they're facing each other. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be and thou shalt put the mercy seat upon above or above upon the ark and in, thou, in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. I'll meet you here on the mercy seat. Cherubim are present. I need to close with two thoughts here before we come to the table of communion. First of all, would the Lord need the mightiest of angels with a flaming sword to keep fallen sinful man from trying to reach the tree of life again? Or to try to reach the tree of life? If angels were, if, if there were weak angels at all, God could have taken the weakest of angels and used one angel to keep man from the tree of life. Why cherubim and why a sword? And we'll have to speculate that it's two cherubim. Or two cherub. And a flaming sword that moved all around, guarding, keeping the way to the tree of life. Certainly the sword's flame was a reminder and a fitting symbol of God's wrath towards sin. But keep in consideration that the flaming sword was also pointed against Satan to keep him from destroying the way of access to the altar which the Lord had set up. Every time God does something for man's good, Satan wants to destroy it. Every time God does something good for man, Satan wants to destroy it. He wants to destroy it. He wants to destroy any thought of it. He wants to destroy anything that would bring thoughts of these things to man. So he would want to destroy that altar to which Adam and Eve could continue to come to meet the Lord. You see, they were expelled from the garden to go and work outside of the garden for their food. But there was a place where they could still meet God. The garden is still around. We'll talk about where we think the, when we think the garden was, is no longer here, but the garden was still there. It was being guarded. Secondly, in the Holy of Holies, now coming up to grips with this understanding, in the Holy of Holies we see two cherubim, one on each side of the Ark of the Covenant where the law was kept. Above it, resting on the Ark, was the mercy seat, and God sat upon the mercy seat. And as the high priest came in once a year and poured the blood on the mercy seat, the sins of man were covered for a time. But now the blood of Christ flows upon the mercy seat and our sins have been cast as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. That's now. Jesus dying on the cross once for all. Not many times, once for all. 
Everything before him was picture. Everything before him was illustration. Everything before him was type. Jesus was the fulfillment of the type. Jesus, once and for all, shed his blood for the sins of men to cover us with his righteousness. And the sins that we had committed, he remembers no more. And therefore, we are now to live in newness of life with Jesus Christ. And we can have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And one day we will have access to that tree of life as we walk with the Lord in the new Jerusalem. So from here on out we will now see God preparing to pay in full the penalty for man's sin. It is the love story of Jesus for sinful man. And it ends with us being with him. In the book of Revelation at the tree of life and so may I say to you it is a truly happy ending it is a truly happy ending what God did to take man out of the garden was for our sakes to have the opportunity to come to Jesus Christ to the seed of the woman who would come to bruise the head, to crush the head of the serpent. And by the way, I have to tell you, as, as wily as, uh, as, as uh, the enemy is, when the Lord told him that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, he didn't know what he had to look forward to. He knew that he had to prevent the coming of Messiah, but he didn't know who he was dealing with. And Jesus Christ, on the cross, defeated Satan once and for all, for everyone who believes in him.